All right, so one, two, three, test. One, two, three, test. Test. Testing. Testing. Testies. Whoa, whoa. That whoa. was unnecessary. Why? I try to keep it like rated PG for everybody. Listen, I have the most best deference for all of our listeners. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist Podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Nagging Naturalist Podcast, a podcast that is all about wildlife. I'm your host, Kristen. I'm a naturalist by trade. And once again this week, I am joined by my partner, Barry. Woo, buddy! If you want to know more about my background, you can check out my first episode, Who is the Nagging Naturalist? Our opinions are our own, and we do not speak for or on behalf of any organization, facility, or institute that's mentioned on the podcast. And give you guys a little bit of an update. Hopefully, if you can already tell, I'm over COVID. Thankfully, it seems like it may have been short, kind of like the flu. I may have only had it for roughly a week. I do have a couple of lingering symptoms the most difficult of which, Barry can tell you, has been my lack of taste and smell. <laughs> yeah, that really upset her. <laughs> uh, but thankfully, it looks like I am getting over it. We both recently got retested, and we are waiting for our test results to see whether or not we are negative so that we can see if we can do our own grocery shopping again. We'll Testing! See. Please stop. Okay. We're not doing that anymore. All right. We're done. Mm. You're done. No more episode for you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so this month we are currently covering species from the Esperance Mallee ecoregion of Western Australia, which if you didn't listen to the last episode, is a essentially a shrubland that's semi-arid, very similar uh, area to the Mediterranean, or at least that's what, that's what Wikipedia says. <laughs> Today, the species we will be discussing is the Splendid Fairy Wren, and you can partially thank Barry for that. I was looking for species to discuss. I'd considered a couple of different species. He had rec- recommended the red-backed fairy wren, but mm-hmm. I decided that while I did like the idea of the fairy wrens because they are really cool, unique, endemic birds, uh, there wasn't really enough information. Well, really, if I'm being honest, there's not a lot of whole information, <laughs> a whole lot of information on the splendid fairy wren, but there wasn't enough information for me to associate the red-backed fairy wren with the Esperance Mallee. It seems like if it does occur in that space just because it happens to be there. Although, to be honest, and we'll discuss this, all fairy wrens to some degree seem to like uh, semi-arid places similar to the Mallee, but not all of them occur in Mallee-like areas. So I chose the Splendid Fairy Wren because it's definitely found in the Esperance Mallee, at least according to the information I found. I gotta say, of all the fae creatures you could have chosen, this is a (laughs) splendid one. Anyway... Launching straight into natural history and the taxonomy. We're, of course, in the kingdom Animalia, in phylum Chordata, class Aves or Aves, however you want to say, birds. Uh, The order is the Passeriformes. The Passerines are perching birds or songbirds. These are birds that are anziodactyl, which means three toes in front, one toe in back, and this facilitates the perching, the grabbing of tree branches and things like that. The family is the Malaridae, something like that. 
It's basically the Australasian wrens. These are not true wrens. These are fairy wrens, uh, grass wrens, and emu wrens, which I'll get into a little bit later. And then the genus and species is Malarus splendens. So a splendid fairy wren, basically. Pretty straightforward. Since the focus this month is on the Esperance Mallee region of Western Australia, I did want to say that there are three subspecies of this bird, and only one of which is known to occur on the western uh, side of Australia. There's two other subspecies that are found a little bit more east. So if we're talking about specifically the splendid fairy wren that is found in Western Australia, then the subspecies, the banded fairy wren, Malarus splendids, splendens, <laughs> is the one that seems to be found in Western Australia based on what I read. The other two are not found in Western Australia. And they all look slightly physically different. Uh, if you look up pictures of the splendid fairy wren, you can kind of see, even just from some of the pictures of the males, some variances in appearance. And some of those variances might actually occur because they're different subspecies and the pictures were taken in different places. So the size of these birds, they're relatively small. So the average length is 14 centimeters or 5.5 inches. And the average weight is about 9 grams or 0.3 ounces. So not even a full ounce of bird. <laughs> very tiny, very light animals. Moving into their appearance, these birds are sexually dimorphic. And really all of the fairy wrens are. So this means that the males and the females are distinguishable from one another based on external physical characteristics. The males during the breeding season are predominantly a rich cobalt blue with very light turquoise cheeks, and then their wings are usually kind of a tealish color as well as their tail feathers. And then they also have a black mask and a black ring around their neck, and the ring usually gets a little thicker towards the back of their neck. Females are mostly a light brown in color with very buff white bellies, and then again with the teal on their wings and teal on their tail feathers, and they also have sort of a reddish or chestnut brown colored beak. Outside of the breeding season, which is known as the male's eclipse plumage, the males take on a more drab look and actually look very similar to the females. Both sexes are fairly round in body, with tails about as long as their entire body. And I should add, I forgot this, uh, the males have small, slender black beaks. There are several subspecies, though, as I mentioned earlier, and they do have some slight variation between the subspecies. So what I just described is kind of a generic look, but depending on the subspecies and the place where you're at, they can actually look just slightly different from one another, whether it's more black uh, on the back of their neck, maybe not as bright a blue, some of them might be a little bit more drab, so it all depends on where you are in Australia. For their range, like I mentioned before, they're mostly found across Western Australia, and they are also found uh, kind of throughout Eastern Central Australia, and some parts of eastern and northern Australia, but for the most part, the two main areas that they occupy are western Australia and central Australia. They prefer dry to semi-arid habitats that are typically shrubby, and this includes the regions of both the Mallee and the Mulga. Their diet is primarily insectivorous. Uh, it is supplemented by some seeds, flowers, and fruit, though, and they do like to forage in low vegetation, so that's where that shrubbiness comes in. For their reproduction, the females build a round domed nest of loosely woven grasses, down feathers, fur, and even use spider webs sometimes. 
There's also an entrance that is usually concealed by thick vegetation. In fact, it's so small in this tiny little domed uh, nest that the female's tail feathers are usually bent during this period when they're incubating. They may have one to three clutches per breeding season of about two to four dull pinkish white eggs with reddish brown splotches on them. The incubation takes roughly two weeks and the chicks will fledge by about 10 to 13 days after hatching. An interesting behavior that a lot of the uh, fairy wrens seem to share is that they actually keep quote-unquote helpers. And the helpers come in kind of two forms. The male and female are monogamous, not monogamous. It's, it's kind of an interesting thing. They've got a really weird behavior going on. But there may be some female helpers that assist, and maybe even in some cases some male help helpers. And very often the helpers that they do have tend to be uh, chicks from previous clutches. So if they have two to three clutches, then chicks from that first clutch of the season can help with the next clutch. So it's it's very interesting. It's very much a family affair raising the babies in that they may have some assistance from other birds and in some cases their own children. So uh, when you say helpers... Um, like feeding the babies... Okay, so, like that. so they aren't, like, coming and sitting on the eggs and, like, hatching them, are they? I didn't read about assisted incubation. From what I read, it looks like it's just the female. Not saying it's not possible, but uh, at the very least, what they do is after the chicks hatch, uh, they'll help do things like retrieve food for them. Because okay. feeding is probably the most intensive thing you have to do with babies is provide enough food for because birds develop really fast. Think about this. Imagine imagine a human baby being born and ready to go in like two weeks after being born. That's that's a lot of growth. Now, granted, our growth is more substantial than a bird's. Uh, birds don't grow quite as big from, you know, freshly hatched to their adult stage. But still, that is a lot of growth to facilitate. It requires a lot of energy and resources by the body. So making sure that the chicks are properly fed so that they grow well is the most important job. I guess it doesn't really matter much to a new baby chick whether or not the food that's being like chomped up and regurgitated into their mouth is from their mom, their dad, their older brother, older sister, or really anything. Nope. <laughs> nope. As long as they get theirs. Yep. I mean, you could say the same of a human baby in some cases. I mean, yes, human babies do, after a period, kind of like learn who like their primary guardians might be, but honestly, if you have a baby being raised continuously by like six to eight people, whether it's a mom, dad, brothers, cousins, aunts, uncles, things like that. Got a full like, house situation going on here. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, they'll take food from whoever they trust. So, I mean, there you go. <laughs> and last but not least, we have the lifespan, which is estimated to be about five to six years. Not very long. Initially, when I looked it up, somebody had suggested 10 years, but that seemed like an overall fairy wren estimate. And even then, when I looked up more information, everything seems to point to a very short lifespan. So only about five to six years. So for the next couple of sections, we're going to keep it a little brief because I am hoping to have a little bit of a bonus segment at the end. So last year, I used to do themed additional episodes. There was the main episode where I discussed these kinds of things, and then I would have extra episodes uh, throughout the month that kind of kept building atop these kinds of things. So instead of having those separate episodes, what I'm trying to do now is every once in a while, if I have a species that doesn't have a lot of information, 
uh, then I'm going to add these bonus segments to kind of expand a bit on them. So we're going to just go ahead and launch into our values. So for envir environmental value, it's really hard to find a vertebrate in the scrubland that isn't an insectivore to some degree because ins insects are one of the most abundant things you can eat because a lot of the plants are not super edible or at least they don't produce enough food to support fully herbivorous vertebrates all the time. So it's not really surprising that this bird's an insectivore. And in fact, one of the other animals I'm looking at <laughs> this month is also an insectivore. A lot of animals that live in heathy or scrublands or other dry, arid places that have very woody, herbaceous plants tend to support a lot of insectivorous vertebrates. And that's usually going to be birds, lizards, sometimes turtles, certain amphibians, mammals, all that stuff. Uh, so, yeah, like I mentioned, it eats bugs. I feel like we need one of those things that they had at the, uh, the commercial breaks for the original Pokemon show where like the, the Pokemon was in like a silhouette and, and you had to guess like, what it was. Yeah, except for in this case, it's who's that insectivore? <laughs> and then we have that little like uh, Rattata uh, like shaped Pokemon. <laughs> it's the Dibbler. It's the Dibbler <laughs> from last uh, episode. I mean, I mean, seriously, I mean, when I looked through the vertebrates to cover for this, I think I found maybe two that weren't strict or strict insectivores. One of them was a common death adder. And I was like, great, just what I need. Another stereotypical, like, venomous Australian animal that can kill a person. That's what I want to talk about. I mean, maybe the Dibbler can kill someone. We don't know. <laughs> we haven't given it the chance. <laughs> but anyway, um, the reason why this is valuable, and it kind of goes back to the Dibbler, too. And, you know, I'm going to try not to be too redundant. But insectivorous animals obviously keep insect insect populations in check and sometimes even non-insects because we are talking about just invertebrates in general. Even though it's called an insectivore, it eats invertebrates on the whole, and that will include things like spiders, which are insects. And this, of course, keeps those populations in check. And in return as well, it does also have the added benefit of helping people, of course, because we do want insects to be kept in check, especially since a lot of the Mali region that is developed is farmland. Um, it is really important to make sure that potential pest populations are kept under control. And so the more insectivorous animals you have around, the more likely it is that they will help reduce the impact of insects on human culture as well. So while it is their, an important ecosystem role for them, for the environment, it does also double as a human benefit as well. Moving into their social value, so due to the fact that this is an incredibly vibrant bird, it is extremely popular to attract to bird feeders and for people to garden and provide shrubby plants for these animals to nest in during their breeding season. And I actually found several websites while I was looking for information on the fairy wren that specifically discuss how to attract fairy wrens to your garden, whether it was keeping a mealworm uh, bird feeder or growing certain shrubby plants, especially ones that have thorns in order for them to uh, protect their nests. So obviously this is a very popular thing. I did unfortunately see a few unethical vid videos, which I'm not going to call out specifically, but I will say there are people online who like to advertise them feeding birds by hand, which means putting food in their hands and having birds fly over and take food from their hands. While this seems innocent, 
it is potentially harmful because it does change a bird's natural behavior. Birds are supposed to be afraid of people. It's safer for birds to be afraid of people. And if we change their behavior so that birds are not fearful of people, it actually teaches the bird to put itself in more dangerous situations where it can be harmed. So I do not recommend ever trying to feed birds by hand. I know it seems like a lot of fun and it seems like a really great way to connect with birds. There are other situations where you can potentially connect with birds where it's safe. And in most situations, we're talking about either banding birds, if that's something you ever want to get into, or meeting a bird that lives under human care. So if you really love birds and you want to attract birds and have close encounters with them, consider looking into your local Autobahn or see if you have a bird club or something nearby and see if they do public bird bandings where they actually allow people to come and help volunteer and learn how to band birds from a permitted professional who is allowed to handle these birds or seek out an encounter at your local nature center, zoo, aquarium, where they might have program birds and things like that. And maybe they even offer special tours where you can have close encounters with these animals. Those are safe situations where coming in close contact with a bird is completely acceptable and completely safe for both you and the bird. I do not recommend trying to attract wild birds to you. It's There's a lot of ethical things to consider with that. Yeah, don't do it. <laughs> Passing quickly into the economic value. So we briefly already covered this. They're insectivores. It has a potential positive impact on farmland and especially even if they're not growing crops, even if it's animal agriculture, you still have to grow crops to feed the animals like cows and sheep and things like that. So no matter how, how you look at it, uh, they benefit any form of agriculture by helping keep uh, potential pests at bay. And then there is, of course, going back to the social value, people spending money on things like uh, feeders and gardening to attract these colorful birds can actually be pretty big. I couldn't find the numbers for Australia, but I know that in Britain alone, <laughs> for how small the country is, British people spend like hundreds of millions of dollars every year on birdseed bird feeders and native plants and things specifically to attract native birds. That's the tiny country of Great Britain or the UK spending hundreds of millions of dollars. I, I assume that potentially there, Australia probably has something similar, especially since Australia has so many different cool birds, whether it's fairy wrens or the large cockatoos or honey eaters, kookaburras, all kinds of stuff. I'm sure that there is a fairly big, uh, native bird industry uh, in Australia. I just couldn't find the numbers on it. So I assume it's there. I just couldn't find that info. And for the last of our usual episode, uh, their conservation is least concern, which is awesome, uh, especially for native birds. Uh, as some people may know, there have been a lot of issues recently where native birds globally have been shown to be declining. And there's a lot of reasons for that. These guys do have some declines that are happening in certain areas, and it's due to diminishing habitat due to either human development or increased wildfires caused by human-driven climate change. So those two things are reducing some of their numbers. And also, with reduced habitat, it increases their competition with other native birds 
who want similar nesting sites. There's about six other types of native birds found throughout the Splendid Fairy Wren's um, range that want similar nesting sites. And so by decreasing the habitat where they can safely live, it increases the competition with those native birds. And last but never least, because this is the issue for every Australian animal ever, is invasive species. They are threatened by the invasive red foxes, house cats, even rats and things like that, especially because sometimes their nests can be a little low-lying as well. They're more accessible to animals that won't climb higher up in trees. So it is incredibly important that these feral predators are kept in check in order to keep these birds from continuing to decline. There are other threats, but those are kind of the big ones, is uh, diminishing habitat, increased competition with other native birds, and the threat of invasive species. Before we move on, did you have anything to add, Barry? You've been uh, uncharacteristically quiet. Just to throw you under the bus. Um... <laughs> Barry's like, it's a bird. It is a bird. I knew that much. <laughs> it's a bluebird. Well, since Barry's rendered speechless by all this amazing information. I'm stunned by his beauty. <laughs> it's splendidness. Splendidness. Splend splendiferousness. Yes. Okay. Um, so for the bonus segment, uh, I decided to do family fauna. So family fauna is when I look at other animals that are related to it, whether we're talking about its evolutionary history or its existing uh, relatives. So... I decided to look at the living relatives because they have quite a few. And honestly, if you get a chance to Google fairy wrens, I'd recommend it because every single one of them are stunning. I don't care which one you look at. They're all gorgeous. So fairy wrens on the whole are not true wrens. What? Shut the front door. <laughs> he says as he looks over my shoulder at my notes knowing that this is coming. <laughs> Helps me predict. Uh... So true wrens are part of the taxonomic family uh, Troglodytidae or something like that. Uh, but this group is actually a unique endemic group from Australia and New Guinea. Okay. I got to stop you. So you got to stop I, me. I, I have to. Okay. So when someone insults someone else by calling them a troglodyte, are they calling them a fairy wren? Well, no. That's the family of the true wrens. So it would be just a wren. And I think it's more of an insult to the wrens than it is to, yeah, so troglodyte is a person who lived in a cave, somebody who is a hermit. So I think it's just trying to describe uh, the natural behaviors of wrens compared to other birds. Because, I mean, you've seen some of the weird places, like I took weird pictures of that house wren that was living inside of like a street lamp. Right. <laughs> like they like to live in like these enclosed cave-like places. So do wrens get their family name from being compared to troglodytes or do troglodytes get their family or get their family name? Do troglodytes get that insult from living like wrens? Who said that troglodyte? Well, I, I guess we do use troglodyte as an insult. I have never thought if someone calls someone else a troglodyte that they are giving them a compliment. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I've never heard it as... Um, 
So it says right here, the family na- the family name is derived from the term troglodyte, which means cave dweller. They get it for their tendency to forage in dark crevices. So troglodyte came first, and then they used troglodyte to describe the true wrens. Not as an insult, but just a statement on behavior. Got it. Okay. I'm <laughs> glad we could settle this. Uh, so... <laughs> Back to fairy wrens, their family is the Maloridae. This covers fairy wrens, grass wrens, and emu wrens. Emu wrens sound cool. They're really just another type of wren. It's actually not as impressive as it sounds. But they have no arms. Wait, I I guess... None of them have arms? (laughs) They all have wings, but... That's literally what birds are, is they are armless vertebrates. Mm. They have wings instead. They they made a tradesies. I'm just thinking of all those those videos of emus where they draw, like, the arms on them. (laughs) Those are my running. favorite. The little babies, like, with their arms reached out. Oh, that is the best. This bonus segment is just me interrupting her every sentence. <laughs> Talking about you moves. So, so, the fa- so narrowing it down a little bit more, uh, the fairy wrens themselves are part of a tribe that falls between the family and the genus. The tribe is called Malorini, something like that. Sounds alcoholic. It, can tra- it contains four genera and 15 current species. Within the splendid fairy wrens genus, Melurus, there is an array of 12 beautifully covered male birds where all but two of the species feature blue plumage. Now, beautifully colored or beautifully covered? C- colored. Did I say covered? Oh, that's my bad. Beautifully colored birds. Okay. Right, sorry. Anyway, going back into what I was going to say is that in birds, blue plumage is very unique, not in that it's it's rare. Well, it is kind of rare. It's not common, at least. But what's really cool about blue in birds is, as far as I know, I don't know if anybody's been shown to have this yet, is no bird has blue pigmentation. So what that means is pigmentation, we have plenty of pigmentation. If you have hair color and skin color, you have pigmentation. Uh, Oh, and also eye color, I guess I should say. So in birds, a lot of colors, especially browns, black, off-whites, and things like that, often are pigmented, which means that the cells have the color in them. Some birds don't. In some cases, they might get it from their diet. Cardinals and flamingos are a great example of birds that have to eat certain foods in order to gain color uh, in their feathers. In the case of blue, though, what's really cool about blue feathers and even some other colors, uh, greens, purples, and things like that sometimes also have this feature, is the color exists from the crystalline structure of the feather cells, which means that the, the feathers reflect in a very specific way that allows only the blue color spectrum to, to bounce off. So there is no color inside the feather that is actually blue. It's actually just reflecting blue color back from the spectrum. It absorbed all the other colors and reflects back blue. Now, I couldn't find anything saying that that was the case with fairy wrens. However, I've yet to see an example of a bird that has true blue blue pigmentation in its actual feathers. If somebody does know about this, I really want to know because I really want to know about this bird and what gives it blue color. But... For the most part, as far as I know, in all bird species, 
blue doesn't exist in the actual pigmentation. So the fact that there are so many of these birds that feature blue <laughs> is really cool because that means they all share a lot of the similar feather structure. And not all birds do. If you look at corvids, some corvids are blue, like blue jays, stellar jays, certain magpies. And then you've got things like ravens and crows, which generally don't have any color for the most part. They're either black or black and white. So let's go ahead and get into a little bit about these 12 species because I think I think that they look really cool. And I think that that is kind of what I want to focus on is uh, some of the appearances of these birds because I kind of understand why they're called fairy wrens after seeing them now is they definitely look like something that popped out of a fairy tale book. Like for those of us that weren't born and raised in Australia, so many vibrant blue birds like this would seem like unreal, <laughs> basically. We've already described what the splendid fairy wren looks like. The next closest genetic relative they have is actually the superb fairy wren, because apparently somebody just named these wrens, a lot of these wrens out of a thesaurus, just they looked up synonyms for good or amazing and just stuck these names on it. So the superb fairy wren is Malorus cyanius or something like that. And the male does share some similar characteristics with the splendid fairy wren. However, it does have a brown body instead of a cobalt blue one, which makes them obviously very easy to distinguish from the splendid. And they do also have a little bit of buff belly too. So like if you look, if you saw just the head pop out of the brush, you might not necessarily be able to immediately distinguish it as the superb versus the splendid as much. But once you see the rest of the bird, there's no mistaking it. <laughs> so what do you mean by buff? So buff white is like an off-white color. It has like a, a tinge of color, like a tinge of like tannish brownish or something. It's not stark white. It's like that off-white. Okay, so it's not like rocking an eight-pack or something. That, that's not no, it's, no it's not. It's not buff. It's... I don't know. Okay, it, it's but it's it's a color. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's my my inner art major, former art major, is coming out a little bit in some of these descriptions. Off white. Okay. Eggshell white. Eggshell white. Ivory white. I can give you like the whole list. Let's let's stick with eggshells. They come out of eggs. Fair. Their eggs aren't white though. That's true. It's just eggshell colored. But their eggshell is that color. No, no. So saying it's eggshell color still feels wrong. Their eggshell is not buff. <laughs> All right. Anyway. <laughs> um, the next closest relative to those two is the purple crowned fairy wren, Malurus coronatus. And it looks very similar to the superb fairy wren. The male has that kind of drab body. But what makes this one really distinguishable is, as its name says, uh, it has a purple patch of feathers on top of its head. I'm assuming that that purple patch of feathers is probably very similar to the blue feathers in that it's not pigmented, it's reflective in color, or reflective in cell structure. So those are the two closest relatives to the splendid fairy wren, is the superb and the purple crowned. Coming up next is actually, I'm going to group these all together because they all look extremely similar and it seems kind of silly to distinguish them. There is the lovely fairy wren. Uh, Malurus amabilis. Or amabilis. Amabilis. Amiable. I know someone the with... The amiable fairy wren. I know some wren. people with a name similar to uh, to that species name. 
Well, let's not call them out on the podcast. Mm. They may not want to be associated with birds. I don't like being associated with birds. It's fair. <laughs> uh, there's the purple-backed fairy wren, Melorus assimilus. Some. There's the red-winged fairy. Oh, wait. You know what? I told you earlier ha, it was red-backed. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's because of this one. There is a red-backed fairy wren, but you're right. So you originally very, wanted... Yeah, the very first fairy wren, because I was looking up some uh, animals from the Mali region, and I suggested the red-winged fairy wren, and we were about to start this podcast, and she's like, I went with the splendid fairy wren instead of the red-backed fairy wren. And I'm like, I thought it was the red-winged fairy wren. And she's like, no, red-backed fairy wren. And so I just kind of was like, okay, I don't remember correctly. Let's let's move on. And now she's read it, and I'm correct. Congratulations. Justice is served on a dish most cold. Well, we haven't been recording that long, so like maybe like room temperature. Mm. Room temperature justice. There, there is there is a red-backed fairy wren, but we'll get to it later. Anyway, backtracking, because now, now you went off on your tangent. So... Or we so the red the purple backed red, uh, fairy wren the red winged fairy wren which is Malurus elegans the variegated fairy wren Malurus lamberti and the blue breasted fairy wren Malurus pulcherimus pulcherimus I hate all these names <laughs> um, so all these all these different fairy wrens and all of them the males have very similar features in that they typically have. Uh, blue on their heads and faces. They have a black neck and/or chin. Uh, white, buff, whitish bellies. Not a six-pack, but just soft white. Uh, ruddy shoulder patches. So like this reddish patch of feathers at the top part of the wing, and then brown wings. Now, there are patterns and some color variation that can help distinguish between the species, but they all share these features in common, though. Like if you if you look up these fairy wrens and look at pictures of them side by side by side by side, you can see they look like, you know, very similar birds with just minor distinguishing features between them for the most part. In some cases, with some of them, the dark patch across their breast uh, has a bluish or violet hue, and in some cases, it's just straight up black. It all depends on the species. Next up, we have the emperor fairy wren, Malorus cyanocephalus which sounds like it just means the blue-headed fairy wren but it got the name emperor fairy wren and then there is the white-winged fairy wren whose scientific name i forgot to put in the notes so let's look that up real quick while you're looking at that up i just want to say that cyanocephalus made me think of cyan colored cephalopod so cyan colored cephalopod yeah what blue colored cephalopod are you talking about no, not, not anything specific, just that it would mean that this fairy wren's actually oh. a cyan-colored cephalopod. I was so confused for a second, and I was like, because when I hear cephala, like I understand in science, that means head. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so cephalopod means head foot. Mm. That's the translation of its, like, Latin or Greek or whatever is head foot. So cephal, like cephalized uh. means to have a head. We are, you and me are cephalized animals. Our cats are cephalized Octopuses technically aren't cephalized, but they get the name cephalopod. I need to start using my frond. Don't don't make a Stargate reference in the middle of a wildlife podcast. Why not? Someone, nobody's gonna get someone got it. And thank you. <laughs> anyway, for the white winged fairy wren, the scientific name 
is Malorus Luceperus. It looks like it's supposed to be similar to like Leucophores. But it's Leucoteris, something like that. It's it's actually probably related to leucistic, which means uh, fair or like animals that lack pigmentation. Anyway, that's the scientific name, sort of, (laughs) for the white-winged fairy wren. Now, these two are both two-toned blue fairy wrens, meaning that both of these have blue, but in the case of the emperor fairy wren, the male is... He's an amazing deep blue color. In fact, in some of the pictures, he almost appeared uh, violet in color. And then they have like a black mask and the black ring around its neck that's characteristic of a lot of these fairy wrens. So it's basically just black and blue. The white-winged fairy wren male has that nice rich cobalt blue color that's in a lot of these other fairy wrens. And as the name suggests, it has white wings. They're quite the contrast to each other. Now we have our final two species. Now these are the only two species of fairy wren that actually don't have any blue. And once again, they're two-toned. So we have the white-shouldered fairy wren, Malorus albo-scapulatus, which I'm sure means like white-shouldered fairy wren. And then the red-backed fairy wren, which is what I originally thought Barry was talking about, which is Malorus Melanocephalus, whose name actually seems to mean black-headed, but it got the name red-backed instead. But, I mean, honestly, the white-shouldered fairy wren has a black head, so I guess maybe that's why the common name isn't black-headed, because there's more than one. Anyway, both of these fairy wrens are black and not blue, with the exception of the white-shouldered fairy wren has, of course, white shoulder patches, a very 80s-looking style kind of look. You know, makes me think of those, like targeted women's shoulder pad looks back in the 80s <laughs> like those that power move where you wore those like strong shouldered like suit jackets mm-hmm. like that's what i thought of when i saw that bird suit jacketed birds yeah just very strong sh- shoulder look shoulder pads you know <laughs> and for the uh red-backed fairy wren it has an all-black body but then it has a bright red band that actually stretches from shoulder to shoulder across its back so that's those two And that is the 12 species of fairy wren that are found in Australia. A lot of these birds occupy a lot of the same spaces, so I'm not going to go too deep into their natural history because in a lot of cases, it's kind of the same. They're all fairly small with long tails, just like the splendid fairy wren. Most of them are insectivores. Most of them live in shrublands and heathy places, very similar to the Mali and Mulga, like I mentioned. Uh, There is a lot of overlap with some of these species, but for the most part, they're pretty well dispersed and found throughout Australia and some up into the New Guinea area. But other than that, they're all fairly known for their really gorgeous colors. Uh, They're very attractive. A lot of people who try to attract birds to their feeders in Australia target things like fairy wrens because they are that really gorgeous blue or red. And they're also kind of secretive. So because they like really shrubby areas, they're known for their small, quick hops and how they like to stay underneath the low brush, and they can be fairly shy. So a lot of people who enjoy birding out in Australia target these birds sometimes because they can be so hard to come by. All right, so before we wrap up this week's episode, Barry, did you have any thoughts, comments, concerns, questions, uh, other synonyms? I got a questions. (laughs) You got a questions? Yes. All right. What you got? All right. So 
They're not true fairy wrens, or they're not no, true wrens. They're not true wrens. So there's the family that is wrens, and then there's fairy wrens, two completely separate, unrelated animals. That was your cat. So why are they called wrens? So I imagine it's in their appearance. So I don't know if you remember what some of our wrens look like. We've had them pop up in the yard, the Carolina wren and the house wren. Mm-hmm. They tend to have small, round, borbish bodies. Borb. With long tails. Mm-hmm. And in particular, the tails are roughly as long as the bodies. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the wrens that visit our garden don't visit our garden to eat seeds. They come to eat insects. In particular, like if you've, I mean, I know you don't watch them like I do, but I've watched them literally like flip over leaves and like catch spiders and things like that in our yard. So, I mean, I can see why people might have assumed that they were related. They have a very similar physical appearance, which makes sense that they're physically adapted to similar diets and that's where we're looking for habitats. It would make sense that some of these birds would have similar physical appearances. This is just one of those things that's kind of like a leftover from people who were familiar with wrens before going to Australia, finding these things and going, ah, these must be some other type of wren. And then naming them that with a common Yeah, that's kind of the unfortunate then... part of Western science is it's very, like everything's framed through Western knowledge. So it's like Western people came and they're like, oh, hey, this looks like the wrens that we're familiar with way back over here, so we're going to call it a wren because we think it's a wren, when in fact their closest relatives outside of uh, the grass wrens and emu wrens are things like honey eaters, which are, once again, their next closest things, I think, uh, what is it? They're, I read a paper, it was kind of interesting, I read a paper about where some of the, these birds kind of like came from, how they migrated and came into the Australian continent, and it's Potential that if you go back far enough, uh, their most common an- ancestor before they arrived in Australia might have been the corvids. So their closest relative is not wrens here in North America, but most likely things like crows and ravens, if that theory proves true. I haven't been able to fully look into it before I did this episode, so I'm going to have to go back and read that paper and learn whether or not ancient corvid ancestors brought us fairy wrens in Australia. I don't know. But it looked really interesting. Apparently there was this really big like radiation of pre-corvids in the world. And some of them may have ended up being fairy wrens. Radiation meaning dispersal, not that corvids <laughs> are radioactive. Gamma rays, they hulk out. Oh Man, crows and ravens are fey birds. Maybe. Maybe. You have a real obsession with the whole Fae thing just because they're called fairy wrens. That was what attracted me to it in the first place. Oh, really? Yeah. That's adorable. I, I was like, why are these things called fairy wrens? Well, you're also looking at an animal called the dwarf bicycle lizard, too. <laughs> I really wish that there was more information on the dwarf bicycle lizard. I'm really sorry that I won't be able to. I, I do feel like that would have been a fun episode, if only because you would have just been excited to talk about its name. And why it's called that. Maybe what I'll do is um, maybe I'll see if there's something I can do at the end of the month and see if I can put something together. Because I I actually posted online, at least on Twitter, I posted the the runner-up, quote-unquote, species that I had considered for last month's species that didn't quite make the cut as Mm -hmm. far as things I was going to discuss. So maybe instead of just posting about the runner-up species, maybe I'll... um, I'll see if I have time to do like a bonus episode or a bonus segment and talk about some cool things about animals that I didn't get to discuss and probably will never be able to discuss because 
understudied and underfunded biology. It may be a long, long time before they actually have info on things like a dwarf bicycle lizard. If you're a grad student that wants a project, <laughs> head out to the Mali region of Australia and look up more information for us about the dwarf bicycle lizard. I guess we should be more specific and say if you're a grad student who is a herpetologist. I, I mean, a lot of people could fall under this ecologist, animal behavioralist, any number of things. But we'll, we'll go under the assumption that it's more likely that somebody who is focused in herpetology is going to be most interested in potentially learning about this lizard species. I don't know of any special like behavior or anything that anybody would want to study about them because there's literally no information about them. If you herp, go derp in the Mali region. <laughs> if you herp, go derp. <laughs> oh man, I want that on a shirt. <laughs> if you herp, go derp. <laughs> and I just want the most bug-eyed looking lizard or snake on the face. <gasps> Hog noses. They have the perfect derp faces. I want a shirt that says, if you herp, go derp. And then just show this really cute derpy hog nose snake. <laughs> oh, thank you for that, Barry. You're welcome. Uh, need to hurry up and like trademark that or something so <laughs> I can make that into a line of shirts. <laughs> you gonna draw me some shirt designs now, Barry? <laughs> <laughs> you said it. <sighs> <laughs> I just called you out. Most people here don't even know that you can draw. I can barely draw. <laughs> you can barely draw. All right. So that's a wrap for this episode about the Splendid Fairy Wren. Thank you, Barry, for your random contributions, as always. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody, so much for listening. Uh, for this episode, I cite some information from some pretty sporadic websites because there weren't a whole lot that discussed this group of animals. If I'm being honest, uh, I got information from the website Animalia, from climatewatch.org.australia, uh, from backyardbuddies.org.au, Australia, and also some information from a study from 2011 called the Major Global Radiation of Corvoid birds originated in the Proto-Papan Archipelago. <laughs> Boy, that was a mouthful. I'm going to try my best to pronounce these names. I am so sorry to the authors. Knud, uh, Johnson, Perry Henry Fabry, Fabre, uh, Robert Rickliffs, and John Fieldsa. Yeltsa. Cool. Thanks, Barry. <laughs> oh, words, man. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to my email, thenaturalist at thenaggingnaturalist.com. I've also got a website, thenaggingnaturalist.com. I'm on social media. You can find me under The Nagging Naturalist on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter under the handle at nag underscore naturalist. You can leave me reviews on Apple Podcasts and podchaser.com to help support the podcast. And if you love learning about wildlife and don't want to wait for another episode, here are some other really awesome wildlife podcasts. How about you read one, then I read one, then you read one, then I read one? Why do I feel like I'm going to regret this? All Creatures Podcast. Crittercast. The Wildlife. Just the Zoo of Us. Animals to the Max. Varmints. Amazing Wildlife Podcast. The Casual Birder. What Are You Podcast. 
The Songbirding Podcast. The Cicada Lounge. Life, Death, and Taxonomy. And Strange Animals Podcast. Which are all safe for work. And then there's Keeper Chat, which is an amazing podcast. Though it is definitely not safe for work. (laughs) That feels so ridiculous. Are we doing this for the next one, too? Sure, why not? Let's keep it going. We'll keep it going. (laughs) Also, here are some really great podcasts you can check out that discuss other sciences or science in general and may or may not have some overlap with wildlife. Petri dish. Planthropology. Bald scientist. Dear grad student. Better than human. More than just a scientist. Curiosity cake. Mad scientist. What are you going to do with that? Papa PhD. Breaking math. Curiosity killed the rat. That's what I call science. And scientist podcast with two T's at the end of scientist. Some of these podcasts are and aren't safe for work. So be sure to double check if that's a concern. I am also on a non-wildlife podcast called The Legend of Portalcast. Which discusses the world of Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. I'll be back next week. Well, possibly we'll be back next week with another species from the Esperance Mallee region. Exclamation mark. <laughs>